Good evening. Is this working? Yeah. Okay. I'm Rika Lesser, co-chair of the Translation Committee, standing in for my co-chair, Keith Goldsmith, who conceived and arranged tonight's reading panel as a natural extension of our World in Translation events that feature not yet published translations and retranslations. Only days ago, Keith and his wife Joan had a baby boy, Henry Michael, born on the 19th of May, weighing in at eight pounds and 13 ounces. Formerly lone chair and my, formerly lone chair and then my co-chair, Peter Glasgold, will host and moderate tonight's program. He's standing in for Carol Janeway, the editor of our three distinguished German translators, who, I'm sad to say, unfortunately could not attend owing to the recent death of her husband, Erwin Glickes. As translators, we are used to standing in for, for impersonating one or more persons, leading double or even multiple lives. And so, tonight I want to introduce Peter Glasgold, neither as the longtime New Directions editor, nor as a translator is likely to turn modern English poems into old English poems, or to give us Boethius in different historical English forms. I would rather introduce him in a relatively new, but hardly secret persona. I give you Peter Glasgold, novelist. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Can you hear me all right? Okay. Uh, I'll, I will introduce the various speakers. Uh, Brian Mitchell, to my right, is now retranslating Franz Kafka's The Trial for Pantheon Shaken as part of that imprint's projected retranslation of all of, of uh, Kafka's works. His earlier translations of Siegfried Lenz, Ralph Rotman, Rodiger Kramer, Martin Zimek, and most recently Heinrich Böhm have won for him the German prize of the the German Prize of the American Translators Association and the Citation for Outstanding Translation from the American Literary Translators Association. Brian Mitchell is also a bibliophile of real consequence with, some of the, with one of the world's uh, most complete collections of who else but Kafka. Burton Pike, sitting in the middle, is perhaps this country's foremost authority on Robert Musil. He has translated Musil's essays and is the general editor and principal translator of Musil's great multi-volume masterpiece, The Man Without Qualities, due out from, from Knopf early next year. John Woods has twice won the Penn Book of the Month Club Translation Prize for his translations of Arno Schmidt's Evening Edged in Gold, and Patrick Susskind's perfume. He is engaged in the heroic effort of retranslating, again for Knopf, the principal works of Thomas Mann. Kafka, Musil, Mann, three writers who, quite as much as Freud and his circle, redefined for our age the meaning of interiority and how one's inner life relates to the exterior world. It is precisely for this 
that we call their fiction indisputably both modern and classic. The idea that a classic should be retranslated anew in every generation is a desideratum not easily accomplished in the case of modern classics. The literary language appropriate for such works isn't likely to have changed radically. While the available translations may themselves have achieved the status of classics in their own right, and their translators' places as minor gods and goddesses in the literary firmament. Picture looking down on us this evening, Willa and Edwin Muir, Ithne Wilkins and Ernst Kaiser, and H.T. Lowe Porter. There are matters of copyright to consider. The whole of an original oeuvre may not yet be in the public domain. The same holds true for the earlier formerly definitive and now merely classic uh, translations, which themselves may have been based on defective texts, since corrected but never translated, but now fully protected by international copyright as new works. In this way, the earlier translations may be considered imperfect, but further, they may have been bodlerized or abridged, perhaps, uh, perhaps with the complicity or even insistence of the author or the author's literary heirs, eager for an American readership. For a publisher to undertake the retranslation of such works entails clear risk. Typically, the sales for the new translation will surge slightly upon publication and thereafter simply maintain the level of the older translations with annual sales rarely exceeding four figures. These are backlist numbers that require the long term for a return on investment. It, it takes an editor of integrity and determination to be committed to the retranslation of a Kafka or a Muzil or a Mon. It is remarkable that in the present instance, this configuration of writers, these immense projects all fall under the wide aegis of Carol Janeway. But for her, none of us would be sitting here tonight. Each of the panelists will read and comment on their translations, and there will be time for questions and answers afterwards. <coughs> Brian, do you want to start? If in my uneasy dreams I'd been asked to translate any novel that I wanted to from the German in the 20th century, it would have been Franz Kafka's The Trial. So you can imagine how I feel in having that task set before me. My attitude toward Kafka is one of bordering on idolatry, and it may not be that kneeling in reverence may not be the best position from which to attempt a translation. Uh, I can say that nothing has caused me more intellectual consternation, but also intellectual delight, than working on this retranslation of the trial. And I'm going to read uh, the final chapter of the trial in what is its present state in a translation in progress. The night before his 31st birthday, it was around 9 in the evening when a hush falls on the streets, two men entered Kay's lodgings in frock coats, pale and plump, with top hats that seemed rigidly attached 
After brief formalities at the entranceway over who should enter first, the same formalities were repeated more elaborately before Kay's door. Although he had been given no notice of their visit, Kay, also dressed in black, was sitting in an armchair near the door, slowly pulling on new gloves, which stretched tightly over his fingers, with the air of someone expecting guests. He stood up at once and looked at the men curiously. Have you been sent for me? he asked. The men nodded, each gesturing with the top hat in his hand toward the other. Kay had to admit that this wasn't the visit he had been expecting. He went to the window and looked out again into the dark street. Almost all of the windows across the way were equally dark. In many, the curtains were drawn. In a lighted window on a floor, on one floor, two small children were playing behind the bars of a railing reaching out toward each other with their little hands, not yet capable of moving from the spot. They've sent old second-rate actors for me, said Kay to himself, and glanced around at them again to confirm his impression. They want to finish me off cheaply. Kay turned to them abruptly and asked, what theater are you playing at? Theater, one of them asked, the corners of his mouth twitching, turning to the other for help. His companion gestured like a mute man struggling with the ghost of speech. They're not prepared for questions, Kay said to himself, and went to get his hat. The men started to take Kay's arms on the stairway, but Kay said, wait till we're in the street, I'm not an invalid. Immediately beyond the entrance, however, they seized his arms in a manner Kay had never experienced before. They placed their shoulders right behind his and, without bending their own arms, wrapped them around the whole length of his, seizing Kay's hands below in a practiced, well-trained, and irresistible grip. Kay walked along stiffly between them. Now they formed such a compact unit that if someone had given a beating to one of them, he would have beaten them all was the type of unit rarely formed except by lifeless matter. Beneath the street, street lamps, Kay tried several times, in spite of the difficulty imposed by their tight formation, to see his escorts more clearly than he had been able to in the semi-darkness of his room. Perhaps they're tenors, he thought, as he regarded their thick double chins. He was nauseated by how clean their faces were. You could still almost see the cleansing hand that had wiped the corners of their eyes, rubbed their upper lips, scrubbed the folds of their chins. When Kay noticed that, he stopped, and as a result, the others stopped as well. They stood at the edge of an open, deserted square decorated with flower beds. Why did they have to send you, of all people? He yelled more than asked. The men were apparently at a loss for an answer. They waited with their free arms dangling like male nurses with a patient who wants to rest. I'm not going any farther, Kay said, to see what would happen. The men didn't have to reply. They simply maintained their grip and tried to pry Kay from the spot. But Kay resisted. I won't need my strength much longer. I'll use all I have now, he thought. The image of flies came to him tearing their tiny legs off as they struggled to escape from the flypaper. These gentlemen are in for some hard work. Just then, ascending a small flight of steps to the square from a narrow lane below, Fräulein Gerstner appeared ahead of them. He was not absolutely sure it was her. There was certainly a strong resemblance, but it made no difference to Kay. 
whether or not it was really Fräulein Gerstner, the futility of resistance was suddenly brought home to him. There would be nothing heroic in resisting now, in making trouble for these men or in trying to enjoy a final flicker of life by fighting back. He started walking again, and part of the pleasure he gave the men by doing so overflowed into himself. Now they allowed him to choose the direction, and he chose to follow in the footsteps of the young woman ahead of them, not because he wanted to catch up with her and not because he wanted to keep her in sight for as long as possible, but simply to bear in mind the warning she represented. The only thing I can do now, he said to himself, and the symmetry of his steps with those of the other three reflected his intentions. The only thing I can do now is keep my mind calm and analytical to the last. I've always wanted to grasp at the world with 20 hands and for a goal that was far from laudable. That wasn't right. Do I want them to see that even a year-long trial has taught me nothing? To leave them thinking I was slow-witted? To have them say when I'm gone that at the start of my trial, I wanted it to end, and now, at the end, I want it to start all over again? I don't want them to say that. I'm grateful they've given me these half-dumb, ignorant men as companions on this journey, and that it's been left up to me to say for myself what needed to be said. In the meantime, the young woman had turned off into a side street, but Kay could do without her now and gave himself up to his escorts. Now all three of them, in total accord, crossed a bridge in the moonlight, the men yielding easily to Kay's slightest move, and when he turned toward the railing, they turned as well, presenting a solid front. Glittering and trembling in the moonlight, the water parted on either side of a small island upon which the foliage of trees and shrubbery arose in a seemingly crowded mass. Beneath the foliage, invisible now, were gravel paths with comfortable benches where for many a summer Kay had relaxed and stretched his legs. I didn't really want to stop, Kay said to his escorts, shamed by their ready compliance. One of them seemed to offer a gentle reproach to the other behind Kay's back for the mistaken stop, and they walked on. They ascended along a few narrow streets where policemen stood or strolled about at times in the distance and at times quite near to them. One, with a bushy mustache and his hand on the hilt of a saber, drew near the not entirely unsuspicious group with what seemed a purposeful stride. The man hesitated. The policeman seemed about to open his mouth. Then Kay pulled his escorts forcibly on. He turned around cautiously several times to make sure the policeman wasn't following him. Then, when they had a corner between them and the policeman, Kay started running. And even though they were gasping for breath, the men were forced to run as well. This soon brought them out of the city, which on this side bordered almost without transition on open fields. A small stone quarry, abandoned and desolate, lay near a building which was still quite urban. Here the men halted, either because this spot had been their goal from the beginning or because they were too tired to go any farther. Now they released Kay, who waited silently as they removed their top hats, wiped the sweat from their foreheads with their handkerchiefs, and gazed about the quarry. The moonlight fell on everything around them with a naturalness and serenity no other light is granted. After a brief polite exchange about who was responsible for the first of the duties to come, the men seemed to have received their assignment without any specific division of labor, one of them stepped up to Kay and removed his jacket, 
his vest, and finally his shirt. Kay shivered involuntarily, and the man gave him a gentle, reassuring pat on the back. Then he folded the clothes carefully as if they would be needed again, although not in the immediate future. So as not to leave Kay standing there exposed to the somewhat chilly night breeze, he took him by the arm and walked back and forth with him a little while the other man searched for some suitable spot in the quarry. When he had found it, he waved and his companion led Kay over to it. It was near the quarry wall. A loose block of stone lay there. The men sat Kay down on the ground, propped him against the stone, and laid his head back on its surface. In spite of all their efforts, and even with Kay's full cooperation, his posture still seemed quite forced and unnatural. So one of the men asked the other to let him work at arranging Kay on his own for a while, but that didn't improve things either. Finally, they left Kay in a position that wasn't even the best of the ones they had already tried. Then one man opened his frock coat and from a sheath on a belt that encircled his vest drew forth a long, thin, double-edged butcher knife, held it up and tested its sharpness in the moonlight. Once more, the repulsive courtesies began. One of them passed the knife across Kay to the other, who passed it back across Kay. Kay knew clearly now that it was his duty to seize the knife as it swayed from hand to hand above him and plunge it into himself. But he didn't do so. Instead, he twisted his head, which he could still move freely, and looked about him. He could not rise completely to the occasion. He could not relieve the officials of all their work. The responsibility for this final failure lay with whoever had denied him the remnant of strength necessary for the deed. His gaze fell upon the top story of the house adjoining the quarry. Like a light flicking on, the casements of a window flew open there. A human figure, faint and insubstantial at that distance and height, leaned far out abruptly with arms outstretched even further. Who was it? A friend, a good man, someone who cared, someone who wanted to help? Was it just one person? Was it all of humankind? Was there still help? Were there objections which had been forgotten? Of course there were. Logic is no doubt unshakable, but it can't withstand a man who wants to live. Where was the judge he had never seen? Where was the high court he had never reached? He raised his hands and spread his fingers wide. But the hands of one man were at Kay's throat, while the other thrust the knife deep into his heart and turned it there twice. With failing sight, Kay saw how the men drew close to his face, leaning cheek to cheek, observing the moment of judgment. Like a dog, he said, it seemed as if the shame would live beyond him. Next, uh, Burton Pike. Yes, uh, Robert Musil's The Man Without Qualities uh, is a novel. Uh, Musil rejected the whole idea of narration. So his novel consists of a succession of scenes. And I'm going to read you three passages from his posthumous papers, which are anywhere from one to 20,000 pages that were not included in the novel. Uh, these were not fragments or sketches in the normal sense. Musil wanted to keep everything open, all of these fragments and sketches open, 
and at some time that he of course never lived to see, he was going to decide which of them to include in the final text. The passages I'm going to read are all about a figure named Clarissa. The central character of the novel is named Ulrich. Uh, Clarissa is the wife of his friend Walter. Clarissa and Walter were childhood friends of Ulrich. Uh, he's come back in, uh, to Vienna and he sees them again after a long time and gets involved with them. Clarissa begins the novel as somewhat of an eccentric and throughout the entire novel she spirals down into insanity. And these are three uh, episodes of um, Clarissa's madness at different stages that I'm going to uh, read uh, to you. Uh, they are drafts, they're not translator's drafts, they're Musial's drafts, so they were, are not in finished form in the sense that they would have been had he included them uh, in, in the novel. The uh, Walter who's referred to is uh, uh, Clarissa's husband. Uh, the Greek who's referred to is a poor uh, man that she fell upon at some hotel spa and seduced and is now madly pursuing uh, in her mind. Uh, Mosbrugger, whose name uh, comes up later, is the sex murderer who haunts the entire novel, is <coughs> one of the most ungodly figures in all of modern literature. So here are three different stages of uh, Clarissa's uh, growing uh, madness. Again, they are, uh, as they occur in the manuscript, they could go in a number of different places. Clarissa took a sleeping compartment. When she got into the carriage, she immediately told the conductor, three gentlemen must be on this train, go and look for them. I absolutely must speak with them. It seemed to her that all her fellow passengers fell under the strong personal influence emanating from her and that they were obeying her commands, the waiters in the dining car as well. But nevertheless, the conductor had to report that he had not found the Greek Walter and Ulrich. After that, with a completely clear sensual impression, she recognized herself in the mirror now as a white she-devil, now as a blood-red Madonna. When she got off the train in Munich the next morning, she went to an elegant hotel, took a room, smoked the whole day, drank brandy and black coffee, and wrote letters and telegrams. Some circumstance or other had led her to assume that the Greek had traveled to Venice, and she issued instructions to him, the hotels, consular offices, and government bureaus. She displayed enormous industriousness. Hurry up, she said to the page boys who galloped around her for the whole day. It was a mood like at a fire when the fire trucks rattle up and the sirens wail, or like a mobilization where horses trot and endless processions of resolute helmet and closed faces march through the streets as if dreaming, the air filled with thrown flowers and heavy with gray tension. That evening, she herself went on to Venice. In Venice, she registered at a pension frequented by Germans where she had stayed on her honeymoon. People there dimly recalled the young woman. The same life as in Munich began, with abuse of alcohol and alkaloids, but now she no longer sent off any telegrams or messengers. From the moment she had got to Venice, perhaps because the official emissaries were not already waiting for her at the station with their reports, she had been convinced that the Greek had slipped through her net and fled to his homeland. The task now was to stem the flood and prepare a final assault without haste and with the strictest measures toward oneself. It was clear that she would sail to Greece, but first the frenzied desire for the man, a desire that had pushed her almost too far, had to be restrained. Besides coffee and brandy, Clarissa took no meals. 
She stripped naked and barricaded herself in her room, into which she did not even allow the hotel personnel. Hunger and something else that she was not able to make out put her in a state of fever-like confusion that lasted for days, in which impatient sexual arousal gradually faded to a vibrating mood in which all sorts of delusions of the senses were mingled. The abuse of strong substances had undermined her body. She felt it beginning to collapse under her. Constant diarrhea. A cavity appeared in a tooth and bothered her night and day. A small, ugly wart began to form on her hand. But all this drove her to exert her mind more and more passionately, like the moment just before the end of a race, when one has to live one's, lift one's leg at every step by willpower. She had got hold of brush and paint pots, and from the arm of a chair, the edge of the bed, and an ironing board that she had found outside the door, she built herself a scaffolding that she pushed along the wall and began to paint the walls of her room with large designs. What she crisscrossed on the bare walls was the story of her life. So great was this process of inner purification that Clarissa was convinced that in a hundred years humanity would make a pilgrimage to these sketches and inscriptions in order to see the tremendous works of art with which the greatest of souls had covered her cell. Perhaps they really were great works for someone in a position to disentangle the wealth of associations that had become tangled up in them. Clarissa created them with enormous tension. She felt herself great and hovering. She was beyond the articulated expression of life that creates words and forms, which are a compromise arranged for everyone, and had again arrived at that magic first encounter with oneself, the madness of her first astonishment at those gifts of the gods, word and image. What she created was distorted, was piled up in confusion and yet impoverished, was unrestrained and yet obeyed a rigid compulsion externally. Internally, it was for the first time the expression of her entire being, without purpose, without reflection, almost without will, becoming literally a second thing, enduring, greater, the transubstantiation of the human being into a piece of eternity. Finally, the fulfillment of Clarissa's longing. While she painted, she sang, I am descended from luminous gods. When they broke into her room, uncomprehending eyes stared at these, uh, at these walls like the eyes of hostile animals. Clarissa had bought a boat ticket and arranged a blanket and a towel twisted into a turban as her imperial attire in order to take them on board with her. Then it occurred to her that a person who finds himself on sacred paths is not allowed to have any money with him without falling victim to a ridiculous incongruity. So she gave away her money and jewelry to laughing gondoliers. As she was about to give a speech in the Piazza of St. Mark's to the people assembled for her departure, a man spoke to her and gently brought her back to her pension. But since this man was unwise enough to recommend her to the protection of her hosts, everyone now poured into her room. The padrona screamed about the damage, gave orders to seize Clarissa's property, swore in vulgar language when none was to be found, and the staff tittered. A horrendous cruelty stared at Clarissa from every side. That primal hatred of inert matter, one part of which pushes another from the spot unless attraction and understanding should mold them together into one. Silently, Clarissa took her turban and cloak in order to leave this land and go on board. 
But at the canal steps, the always friendly brown-black chambermaid came after her and begged her to wait because a gentleman wanted to have the honor of showing her something before she left. Clarissa stopped in silence. She was tired and really no longer had the strength to travel. When the gondola with a man and two strange men appeared, she stared gravely into the girl's friendly eyes, which were now almost floating in a moist shimmer and thought the grievous word, Iscariot. She had no time to reflect on this shattering experience. In the gondola, she calmly and seriously kept her eyes on the strange man and had the distinct impression that he was shrinking from her. This satisfied her. They came to the Colleone monument, and now the strange man spoke to her for the first time. Why don't we go in here, he said, indicating a building beside the church that stood there. There's something particularly nice to look at. Clarissa suspected the trap being set for her by the official of public security, but this suspicion had no value for her, so to speak, no causal valency. I'm tired and ill, she said to herself. He wants to lure me to the hospital. It's unreasonable of me to go along. But my madness is merely that I fall out of their general order and my causality isn't theirs. Only disturbance in a subordinate function which they overestimate. In their causal associations, what I do and how I do it is sick because they don't see the other. When they entered the building, she divided the rest of her jewelry and her towel among the matrons who accepted them, seized her, and strapped her to a bed. Clarissa began to cry, and the matron said, Poveretta. There is an episode in which Ulrich goes to an island in the Adriatic at one point with his sister Agatha at another point, which I'll read you part of with Clarissa. Uh, again, Muziel uh, was at some point going to decide which of the two to use. Uh, as they're wandering around the island, uh, the second passage occurs. Clarissa began to express her life in poems. On the island of the healthy, Ulrich found this quite natural. In our poems, there is too much rigid reason. The words are burnt out notions. The syntax holds out sticks and ropes as if for the blind. The meaning never gets off the ground that everyone has trampled. The awakened soul cannot walk in such iron garments. Clarissa discovered that one would have to choose words that are not ideas. But since there don't seem to be any, she chose instead the word pair. If she said, I, this word was never able to shoot up as vertically as she felt it, but I read is not yet imprisoned by anything and flew upwards. Just as beneficial is freeing words from their grammatical bonds, which are quite impoverished. For, for example, Clarissa gave Ulrich three words and asked him to read them in any order he chose. If they were God, red, and goes, he read God goes red or God red goes. That is, his brain immediately either understood them as a sentence or separated them by commas in order to underline that it was not making them into a sentence. Clarissa called this the chemistry of words, that, all, that they always cohere in groups, and she showed how to counter this. Her favorite bit of information was that she worked with exclamation marks or underlining, God, red, goes. Such pilings <coughs> slow one down, and the word dams up behind them to its full meaning. 
She also underlined words from one to ten times, and a page she had written this way at times looked like a cryptic musical score. Another means, but one she used less frequently, was repetition. Through it, the weight of the repeated word became greater than the power of the syntactic bond, and the word began to sink without end. God goes green, green, green. It was an incredibly difficult problem to correctly ascertain the number of repetitions so that they would exactly express what was meant. Uh, Clarissa had been taken on a visit to an insane asylum, and she is now uh, recalling this part of this episode. She often saw before her the naked man standing in the center of a totally empty room that had nothing in it but a low cot and a toilet that were of a piece with the floor. He had a blonde beard and light brown pubic hair. He ignored both the opening of the door and the people looking at him. He stood with his legs spread apart, kept his head lowered like a savage, had thick saliva in his beard, and repeated like a pendulum the same motion again and again, throwing his upper body around in a shallow circle, always with a push, always toward the same side, his arm forming an acute angle to his body, and the only thing that changed was that with every one of these motions, another finger jumped up from his clenched fist. It was accompanied by a loud, panting scream, forced out by the requisite monstrous exertion of the whole body. Dr. Friedenthal had explained that this went on for hours and had allowed Clarissa to look into other cells where, for the moment, quiet reigned. But this sight had been, if anything, even more horrifying. He showed her the same bare cement room containing nothing but a person whose fit was imminent and one of these people was sitting there, still in his street clothes. Only his tie and collar had been removed. It was a lawyer with a lovely full beard and carefully parted hair. He sat there and glanced at the visitors as if he had just been on the point of going to court and had only sat down on this stone bench because he was compelled, for God knows what reason, to wait. Clarissa was especially horrified by this person because he looked so natural. But as Dr. Friedenthal said just a few days ago, in his first fit, he had killed his wife. And almost all the transient inhabitants of this section were murderers. Clarissa asked herself why she was afraid of them when it was precisely these patients who were best secured and supervised. She feared them because she did not understand them. But it was almost certain that she would meet them. That was an idea it was impossible to eradicate for no matter how often Clarissa imagined the process of climbing over the wall into the asylum and then walking forward through the gloomy, widely spaced trees, sooner or later it came to a gruesome encounter. This was a given fact one had to reckon with and therefore it was reasonable to ask what it meant. Even as solid a man as the famous old American writer Ralph Waldo Emerson, whom she had read in her adolescence because her friends told her he was marvelous, maintain that it is a general law of nature and man that like is attracted by like. Clarissa remembered a sentence which went roughly that everything that comes to a person tends toward him of itself so that cause and effect only apparently succeed each other but in reality are simply two sides of the same thing and that all cleverness is bad because with every precautionary rule against danger it puts one in the power of this danger. 
All Clarissa had to do when she remembered this was to apply it to herself. If it was established that she, even if at first only in some mysterious fashion in her mind, was continually meeting murderers, then she was attracting these murderers. But now was like being attracted by like? That meant she bore within herself the soul of a murderer. One can imagine what it means when such extraordinary thoughts suddenly find solid ground beneath their feet. It was like lightning bolts striking each other. Walter was attracted by her to murder his talent again and again in her, no matter how much she pushed him away. She carried a mole, a black medallion at the crease of her hip, and the insane divined it. Perhaps such people can see through clothes and came towards her rejoicing. In a confusing way, all the facts fit. Laughter and difficulties struggled around Clarissa's mouth. It alternately opened and clamped tight. She had got up too early. Walter was still sleeping. She had hastily thrown on a light dress and gone outside. The singing of birds reached her from the woods through the empty morning stillness. The hemisphere of the sky had not yet filled with warmth. Even the light was still shallowly dispersed. It only goes as far as my ankles, Clarissa thought. The cock of the morning has just been wound up. Everything was before its time. Clarissa was deeply moved that she was wandering through the world before its time. It almost made her cry. She fervently regretted that during her visit to the madhouse, she had seen through Mosberger's situation too late. What she had seen being played out before her was worthless devils gambling for Mosberger's soul. She heard herself being called to turn back there once more, but Dr. Friedenthal blocked her path. She felt quite ashamed and went on like that for some ways. But at some point, a thought took shape that released her from this depression. Many great men had been in insane asylums, and they had been derided by those who had remained in possession of their reason. They had now become incapable of explaining themselves to those for whom earlier they had had only contempt. She remembered the muteness of the late Nietzsche, whom she worshipped. And what had vexed her just now because she had not seen through it in time how the three devils had intentionally brought her before Moosberger in so miserably casual a fashion in order to get the better of her by cunning and paralyze her, now slowly made her understand as a sign that the fate of the great man among the repulsive warders of the world would be laid upon her too. Her heart was filled by a drifting rain of light and tears. It was uncanny, putting one on an equal footing with the insane. But being on the same footing with the uncanny is to cast one's lot for genius. She decided to free Mosbrugger from his waters. Thoughts as to how she might do this flitted around in her mind. The swallows, too, had meanwhile begun to flit through the air. In some way, it would have to work. Clarissa was so absorbed in these thoughts that she felt the depths like the narrow incline of an abyss. She had to draw in her shoulders and could only cautiously venture a smile. It occurred to her that this would be the depth of anti-moral inclination that Nietzsche demanded of his disciples. She was astonished at this, for she had not expected that it was possible to experience it so palpably. It was a path through a landscape of counter-morality. The landscape of counter-morality lies deep beneath that of ordinary life not yards deep, but octaves deep. That is how it seemed to her. Everything great lives there. 
It goes the same ways others go, but without touching them. Against that, Clarissa said to herself, half aloud, I am following in Nietzsche's footsteps. She could also imagine that Mosberger had taken Nietzsche's sorrow upon himself and was Nietzsche in the shape of a sinner. But that was not her object at the moment. Now she had to take the sorrow upon herself. This is what preoccupied her. She felt it hovering otherworldly in the vacancy of the morning. She was carrying something that towered up hugely from her shoulders. But then she thought something over and went home. John Woods. For those of you who have not recently read uh, The Magic Mountain, uh, perhaps a quick plot summary to where we are at the point where I will read to you. Um, Hans Kostorp, our hero, is, as Thomas Mann says, an ordinary, if engaging, young man. Uh, he visits his uh, consumptive cousin, Joachim Siemsen, at the International uh, Sanitarium Berghof in Davos, Switzerland. At the end of his three weeks' visit, um, Hans comes down with a cold and he seeks out medical advice, whereupon he allows himself to be convinced that he should become a permanent resident. After a brief period of bed rest, he becomes a regular patient, engaging in all the non-rigors of the rest cure. We are now two months into his stay. Among his adventures during this brief time um, is a very intense infatuation with a woman, Claudia Chauchat, it is, however, a love across the dining hall. It is only in Hans's mind at this point. And for the rest, all you need to know about this passage um, is that Joachim Simpson, his cousin, also has a reticent infatuation with another Russian girl named Marussia, equally uh, unrequited and from a distance. And one of the reasons that Hans Kastorp is so infatuated with Claudia is that she reminds him of a boy on whom he had an adolescent crush, Pribyshlav Hippe. And the height of his ardor in those days had been that he had borrowed a pencil from Pribyshlav, and Pribyshlav had responded, but please give it back. And so eight days passed until Hans Kastorp's x-ray examination. He had not known how many days would have to pass, but one morning at early breakfast, he received his orders from the head nurse, who had another sty now. Could not be the same one. Apparently, she was naturally susceptible to this harmless but disfiguring ailment. He had to report to the laboratory that afternoon, which made it eight days. Hans Kastorp was to appear a half hour before tea along with his cousin, since Joachim, who was also sp supposed to have a picture taken of his interior at the same time, his previous one being considered too old to be valid. And so they had both cut short the main afternoon rescue by a half hour, had descended the stairs to the pseudo-basement at 3.30 on the dot, and now sat in the little waiting room that separated the consulting and x-ray rooms. Joachim, for whom this was nothing new, was quite calm. Hans Kostorp was a little feverish with expectation, since until now, no one had ever taken a look into his organic interior. They were not alone. Several guests were already seated in the room, tattered illustrated magazines spread over their knees. They all waited together. A young, big bruiser of a Swede who sat at Sedembrini's table in the dining hall and who, people said, had been so ill when he arrived the previous April that he had been admitted only with great reluctance 
but who now had put on 80 pounds and was about to re be released as fully cured. A woman from the bad Russian table, a mother, a wretched soul, and her even more wretched, long-nosed, ugly son named Sasha. The three had been waiting before the cousin's arrival and presumably had precedence on the appointment list. Evidently, they were well behind schedule in the adjoining x-ray room, and a long wait appeared likely. They were very busy in there. You could hear the director's voice giving orders. It was a little past 3.30 when a technical assistant who worked down here opened the door to admit the lucky Swedish bruiser. Evidently, his predecessor had been let out by way of another exit. Things proceeded more quickly now. Ten minutes later, they heard footsteps in the corridor, the stalwart stride of the fully cured Scandinavian, a walking advertisement of the climate and the sanatorium. The Russian mother and Sasha were admitted. As he had noticed previously when the Swede had gone in, Hans Kastorp saw that semi-darkness, a kind of artificial twilight, reigned in the X-ray room, just as it did in Dr. Kukovsky's analytical chamber. The windows had been blacked out, daylight banned, and only a couple of electric bulbs were turned on. Hans Kastorp watched as Sasha and his mother were ushered in, and at the same moment, the door to the corridor opened and the next scheduled patient arrived. A little early, since the lab was running late, it was Madame Chauchat. It was Claudia Chauchat, who had appeared suddenly in the little room. Hans Kastorp's eyes stared wide when he realized who it was, and he could feel the blood drain from his face and his jaw go slack. His mouth was close to dropping open. Claudia's entrance had been so random, so totally unexpected. One moment she was not there, and the next she was sharing the little waiting room with the two cousins. Joachim gave Hans Kastorp a quick glance, and then not only lowered his eyes, but also picked up a magazine he'd only just put back on the table and hid his face behind it. Hans Kastorp could not make up his mind to do the same. After first turning pale, his face was now very red and his heart was pounding. Frau Chauchat took a seat on a little round chair with rather, rather rudimentary stubby arms that stood beside the door to the laboratory. She leaned back, crossed one leg lightly over the other, and stared into space, although the nervous distraction of being watched gave a certain sly squint to her Kribishlav eyes. She was wearing a white sweater and a blue skirt and held a book, a library book, it appeared, on her lap. She lightly tapped out a rhythm with the sole of the shoe resting on the floor. Barely 90 seconds had passed before she shifted her position, looked around, stood up with a face that seemed to say she did not know what she was doing here or whom to ask, and began to speak. She asked something, directing her question to Joachim, even though he was still engrossed in his magazine and Hans Kostorp was sitting there doing nothing at all. She formed the words with her mouth, and there was a voice, too, coming from that white throat. It was the voice Hans Kostorp already knew, not too low, pleasantly husky with a slight edge to it, knew from both a great distance and once from up close when it had spoken words meant for him. Glad to, but be sure to give it back to me after class. Those words had been spoken in fluent German, however, and in a more definite tone. These were now halting and in broken German, a language to which she had no natural right but was merely borrowing, just as Hans Kostorp had heard her do a few times before, listening each time with a sense of superiority that was simultaneously cradled in humble delight. One hand in the jacket of her wool sweater, the other at the back of her head, Frau Schauschau asked, please, for what time is your appointment? And Joachim, glancing up again at his cousin and clicking his heels in his seated position, replied, 3.30. She now continued, mine is for 3.45. What time is it? It is almost four. Someone just went in, am I right? 
Yes, two people, Joachim responded. They were ahead of us. The lab is behind schedule. It looks as everything has been moved back a half hour. That is unpleasant, she said, and nervously patted her hair. Rather, Joachim replied, we've been waiting almost a half hour now. The two of them conversed, and Hans Kostorp listened as if in a dream. For Joachim to speak with Frau Shosha was almost the same as if he himself were speaking with her, though of course totally different too. Hans Kostorp had been offended by Joachim's rather, it had sounded so impertinent or at least oddly indifferent under the circumstances, but the main thing was that Joachim spoke, that he was able to speak to her at all, and perhaps was even showing off a little for his cousin with his impertinent rather, just as Hans Kostorp had himself showed off for Joachim and Settembrini when he'd been asked how long he intended to say and had said, three weeks. She had turned to address Joachim, despite the magazine he was holding up in front of his face, because he was a long-term resident, of course, and so she had known him longer, at least by sight, although there was that other reason, too. A polite social conversation, an articulated exchange, was quite appropriate for them, because no savage, profound, terrible secret existed between them. Had someone brown-eyed with a ruby ring and orange blossom perfume been waiting with them here, it would have been up to him, Hans Kostorp, to speak up and say, rather, to stand across from her so sovereign and correct, although he would have said, certainly, mademoiselle, rather unpleasant, and perhaps have pulled his handkerchief from his breast pocket with a little flourish and blown his nose. Please, be patient. We're in the same situation ourselves. And Joachim would have been amazed at his easygoing manner, presumably, however, without seriously wanting to have changed places with him. No, given the situation, Hans Kostorp was not jealous of Joachim either, even though it was he who had spoken with Frau Shosha. It did not bother him that she had turned to Joachim, and she had taken, she had taken the circumstances into account in doing so, thereby, thereby making it clear that she was aware of those circumstances. His heart was pounding. After having been treated by Joachim so coolly, indeed, Hans Kostorp sensed something of a gentle hostility in good Joachim's attitude toward their fellow patient, a hostility that made him smile despite his own inner turmoil. Klavdia tried pacing the room, but there was not enough space for that, and so she too picked up a magazine from the table and returned to her round chair with rudimentary arms. Hans Kostorp sat there and stared at her so long that he had to assume his grandfather's chin-propping pose which made him look absurdly like the old man. Frau Shosha had again lightly crossed one leg over the other, and now the slender outline of the whole leg was visible under the blue fabric of her skirt. She was of only average height, which Hans Kostorp found very agreeable, just the right size. She had the relatively long legs and was not at all broad in the hips. She was not leaning back now, but was bent forward, her forearms folded, and resting on the thigh of the crossed leg, her back rounded and her shoulders hunched so that the bones of her neck stuck out. You could almost see her spinal column under the close-fitting sweater. Her breasts, which were not voluptuous and high-set like Marussia's, but the small breasts of a young girl, were pressed together from both sides. Suddenly, Hans Kostorp recalled that she was also here waiting to be x-rayed. The director was painting her, interpreting her external appearance with color and oils on canvas. But there, in the twilight, he would turn rays on her that would expose the inside of her body, and at the thought, Hans Kostorp turned his head to one side and his face darkened with the shadow of respectability and assumed a look of discretion and propriety that seemed appropriate to such a vision. The three of them did not have long to wait together. 
The staff inside was apparently in a hurry to catch up and had made short work of Sasha and his mother. Once again, the technician in his white smock opened the door. Joachim stood up and tossed his magazine on the table. Hans Kostorp followed him, although not without some apprehension toward the door. Chivalrous scruples stirred within him, tempting to him to ad address Frau Schocha politely after all and offer to let her go first, perhaps even in French, if he could manage it, and he hastily searched his memory for vocabulary and syntax. But he did not know if such courtesies were usual here, if the schedule of appointments was not considered far more important than acts of chivalry. But Joachim would surely know, and it did not appear as if he were about to defer to the lady present, despite the troubled, earnest look that Hans Kostorp threw him. And so he followed his cousin past Frau Schocha, who glanced up fleetingly from her hunched-over position, and they moved through the door to the laboratory. He was so numbed by what he had just left behind, by the adventures of the last 10 minutes, that he was unable immediately to realign his inner world as he crossed the threshold into the X-ray room. He saw nothing, or only general outlines in the artificial twilight. He could still hear Frau Schocha's pleasant, opaque voice saying, what time is it? Someone just went in. That is unpleasant. And the timbre of her voice caused a shudder of sweet excitement to pass up and down his back. He could see her knee outlined under her skirt. The back of her neck bent forward under the short, reddish blonde hairs that hung loose from the tucked up braid, saw the neck bone sticking out, and the shudder passed over him once again. He now saw Director Barron standing in front of a cupboard or built-in cabinet, his back to them as they entered. He was inspecting a blackish plate held, that he held out at arm's length against the dull light of the ceiling lamp. They passed him as they moved deeper into the room and were themselves passed by the assistant who was busy getting things ready for the procedure. There was a peculiar odor here, kind of stale ozone smell in the air. The built-in unit jutted out between two black curtained windows, dividing the laboratory in unequal parts. You could make out clinical apparatus of various sorts, glassware, switch boxes, and tall vertical gauges, but also a camera-like box on a rolling stand and rows of glass photographic plates set along the walls. You couldn't tell if you were in a photographer's studio, a dark room, or an inventor's workshop in sorcerer's laboratory. Joachim began without further ado to strip to the waist. The assistant, a younger, squat, red-cheeked local in the white smock, instructed Hans Kostorp to do the same. It would go fast. It would soon be his turn. While Hans Kostorp was removing his vest, Behrens stepped out of the smaller recess and joined them in the larger part of the room. Hello there, he said. Why, it's our Dioscuri boys, Castor and Pollux, please. Keep all screams of pain to a minimum. Be careful now. We're going to look right through you both. I believe you're afraid to reveal your insides to us, aren't you, Castorp? May set your mind at ease. Our procedures are quite aesthetic. Look here. Have you seen my private gallery? And grabbing Hans Castorp by the arm, he pulled him over to the rows of dark glass plates. He flipped a switch. Illuminated now, the plates revealed pictures. Hans Castorp saw body parts. Hands, feet, knees, thighs, calves, arms, pelvises. But the rounded living contours of these fragments of the human body were phantom-like and hazy, like a fog or a pale, uncertain aura, they enclosed a clear, detailed, and carefully defined core, the skeleton. Very interesting, Hans Kostorp said. <laughs> Very interesting indeed, the director replied. Useful visual aid for the instruction of the young, illuminated anatomy, the triumph of the age. This is a female arm. You can tell by its dainty form, you see, the kind they hug you with on intimate occasions. And he laughed which set his upper lip and short-cropped mustache a little more askew. The pictures went dark. 
Hans Kostok turned away to watch the preparations for taking Joachim's interior portrait. These were underway in the front of the built-in unit where the director had been standing as they came in. Joachim had sat down now on a kind of cobbler's bench, facing a panel against which he now pressed his chest, hugging it at the same time with both arms. The assistant helped Joachim improve his position, pushing his shoulders further forward and massaging his back in a series of kneading motions. He now moved behind the camera, and like a photographer, legs spread wide, bent forward to check the angle. He expressed his satisfaction, and stepping to one side, he told Joachim to take a deep breath and hold it until everything was over. Joachim's back expanded and stayed that way. At the same moment, the assistant flipped the appropriate switches. For two seconds, the dreadful forces necessary to penetrate matter were let loose. A current of thousands of volts, 100,000, Hans Kostorp thought he had heard somewhere, barely tamed for their purpose. These forces sought out other outlets for their energy. Discharges exploded like gunshots. The gauges sizzled with blue light. Long sparks crackled along the wall. Somewhere, a red light blinked like a silent, threatening eye, and a vial behind Joachim's back was filled with a green glow. Then everything calmed down, the spectacle of lights vanished, and Joachim expelled his breath with a sigh. It was over. Next culprit, Baron said, and poked Hans Kostorp with his elbow. Now don't pretend you're too tired. You'll get a free copy, Kostorp. Just think. You'll be able to project the secrets of your bosom on the wall for your children and grandchildren. Joachim had stepped away. The technician was changing plates. Director Behrens personally showed the novice how he was to sit and hold his body. Hug it, he said. Hug the panel. Imagine it's something else, if you like. Press your chest up tight as, it, as if it meant sweet bliss. That's it. Breathe deep. Hold it, he commanded. Now smile, please. Hans Kostorp waited, his eyes blinking, his lungs full of air. The thunderstorm burst behind him, hissing, crackling, popping, and fell quiet again. The lens had peered inside him. He dismounted, confused and dazed by what had happened to him, although he had not felt anything at all during the penetration. Well done, the director said. Now let's have a look for ourselves. Joachim, being an old hand at this, had moved back toward the exit door to take up a position at an adjustable frame. Behind him stood the broad structure of the apparatus, a glass retort extruding tubes and half-filled with liquid visible on its top rear shelf. In front of him, at chest level, a framed screen dangled from a series of pulleys. To his left, a red-globed lamp sat amid a panel with a switch box. Seating himself astride a footstool placed in front of the dangling screen, the director turned on the lamp. The ceiling lamp went out, and only ruby light illuminated the scene. With one quick motion, the master extinguished that as well, and the laboratory was wrapped in darkest night. Our eyes have to adapt first, the director's voice said in the darkness. We have to wait for our pupils to get nice and big, like a cat's, in order for us to see what we want to see. I'm sure you understand that we can't see properly just like that with our normal daylight eyes. For our purposes here, we first have to ban any rousing daylight scenes from our minds. Oh, but of course, Hans Kostorp said, standing now behind the director. He had closed his eyes because in the pitch black night it made no difference if they were open or shut. We first have to let it let darkness wash over our eyes to see anything. That's obvious. I, I find it even quite appropriate for us to gather here together beforehand, sort of in silent prayer, as it were. I'm standing here with my eyes closed and feeling pleasantly drowsy. But what's that odor? Oxygen, the director said. That's oxygen that you sent in the air, a gaseous product of our little parlor thunderstorm, if you will. Eyes open, he said. Let the exorcism begin. Hans Kostorp obeyed at once. 
They heard a switch thrown. A motor started, its angry hum mounting higher and higher, but suddenly reduced to a drone at the flip of another switch. The floor vibrated steadily. The little red light, a long vertical slit, stared at them, silent and threatening. A spark crackled somewhere, and the milky glow of a slowly brightening window, the pale rectangle of the fluorescent screen, emerged out of the darkness. And before it sat Director Barron's astride his footstool, thighs spread wide, fists propped against them, snub nose close to the screen that gave him a view into the organic interior of another human being. Can you see it, my lad? He asked. Hans Kastorp bent down over his shoulder, but first looked up once more into the darkness to where he assumed Joachim's eyes were staring out, gentle and mild, just as on that day at his checkup. Do you mind? He asked. Oh, please, go ahead and look came Joachim's generous reply out of the blackness. And with the floor vibrating under him and great forces crackling and blustering at play around him, Hans Kastorp peered through the pale window, peered into the void of Joachim Simpson's skeleton. His breastbone merged with his spine into one dark, gristly column. The ribs at the front of his ribcage overlapped those at the back, which looked paler. The collarbone curved upward on both sides, and the bones of the shoulder, the joint where Joachim's arm began, looked lean and angular against the soft halo of flesh. You were at a dark curve rising and sinking inside the window. See this knob here, this little raised spot? That's from when he had pleurisy at the age of 15. Take a deep breath, he commanded. Deeper, I said deep. And Joachim's diaphragm quivered and rose as high as it would go, the upper parts of the lungs were brighter now, but the director was still not content. Unsatisfactory, he said. Do you see the hilum there? Do you see those adhesions? Do you see these cavities here? That's where the toxins come from that make him so tipsy. But Hans Kostop was preoccupied with something that looked like a sack or maybe a deformed animal visible behind the middle column or mostly to the right of it from the viewer's perspective. It expanded and contracted regularly like some sort of flapping jellyfish. Do you see his heart? the director asked, lifting his giant right hand from his thigh again and pointing an index finger at the pulsating pendant. Good God, it was his heart, Joachim's honor-loving heart that Hans Kastrup saw. I can see your heart, he said in a choked voice. Please, go ahead and look, Joachim replied again, and he was probably even smiling meekly up there in the dark. But the director ordered him to be silent and not to exchange sentimentalities. He studied the spots and lines, the blackish ruffles in the chest cavity, while his fellow viewer gazed tirelessly at Joachim's sepulchral form, his dry bones, his bare scaffolding, his gaunt momento mori. He was filled with both reverence and terror. Yes, yes, I see it, he said several times. My God, I see it. He had once heard about a woman, a long dead forebear on the teenapple side of the family, who was said to have been endowed or cursed with the troublesome talent that she had borne in all humility and that had caused her to see anyone who would soon die as just a skeleton, which was exactly how good Joachim now looked to Hans Kostort, although with the aid and under the auspices of physical optics so that it did not really mean anything and was perfectly normal, particularly since he had expressly obtained Joachim's permission. And yet he felt some sympathy for the melancholy fate of his clairvoyant great-aunt, he was deeply moved by what he saw, more accurately by being able to see it, but he was also stung by secret doubts whether it might not be somehow abnormal, after all, doubts about whether it was permissible to stare like this amid the quivering, crackling darkness. 
a deep desire to enjoy the indiscretion blended with feelings of compassion and piety. A few minutes later, he himself was standing in the stocks while the little thunderstorm raged. And Joachim, his body closed from view again, began to dress. Once again, the director peered through the milky pane, but this time into Hans Kostorp's interior, and from his mutterings, ragtag curses and phrases, it appeared his findings corresponded to his expectations. And in response to much begging, he was kind enough to allow his patient to view his own hand through the fluoroscope. And Hans Kostorp saw exactly what he should have expected to see, but which no man was ever intended to see and which he himself had never presumed he would be able to see. He saw his own grave. Under that light, he saw the process of corruption anticipated, saw the flesh in which he moved decomposed, expunged, dissolved into airy nothingness. And inside was the delicately turned skeleton of his right hand and around the last joint of the ring finger dangling black and loose, the signet ring his grandfather had bequeathed him, a hard thing, this ore, with which man adorns a body predestined to melt away beneath it so that it can be free again and move on to yet other flesh that may bear it for a while. With the eyes of his teen apple forebear penetrating, clairvoyant eyes, he beheld a familiar part of his body, and for the first time in his life, he understood that he would die. And he made the same face he usually made when listening to music, a rather dull, sleepy, and devout face, his head tilted toward one shoulder, his mouth half open. The director said, spooky, isn't it? Yes, there's no mistaking the whiff of spookiness. And then he put a stop to those great forces. The floor grew quiet, the spectacle of lights faded, the magic window wrapped itself in darkness, the ceiling lamp went on, and while Hans Kostorp threw on his clothes, Behrens gave the young people some information about what he had observed, though with proper regard to their abilities as laymen to comprehend it. As for Hans Kostorp's case, the optical and acoustical results corresponded as precisely as one could demand of science. But the old spots, both the old spots and the fresh one, had been visible, there were strands, that ran from the bronchi well down into the lung itself, strands with nodules. Hans Kostorp would be able to verify that for himself on the x-ray plate, a copy of which he would soon be given as promised. And so rest, patience, manly discipline, food, thermometers, sleep, just grin and bear it. He turned his back to them. They departed. First Joachim, then Hans Kostorp, who glanced back over his shoulder as they left. Ushered in by the technician, Frau Schoschal was now entering the laboratory. Earlier this evening, uh, John Woods assured me that uh, his translation of The Magic Mountain was funny. <laughs> uh, uh, perhaps we can take some questions now about precisely how these, to start with, how these translations um, differ from the earlier translations and what the translators feel about that and, uh, and why they are different from the earlier translations. Uh, if you have a, uh, have a uh, question, please come up and uh, speak through the microphone and give your name if you care to, uh, and the panelists will all respond as best they can. Somebody coming? 
Peter, right here. Mm. Oh, I'm sorry. No. Does does somebody have a question? Would they like to? <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, you all want them to answer my question. All right. What was wrong? Well, I'll just comment comment how your translation is 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 how it differs from the earlier ones. Uh, uh, and how you respond or didn't respond to the fact uh, that there is another translation well known and that's available. Who wants to go first? How about Brian? Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the classic and standard translation of the trial uh, by the Muirs was done in the 1920s, so one obvious difference is that in the years that have passed since the 20s, much has been written and thought about the text, and uh, we have perhaps too much information about it. We, we see too much in the words. That may make it even more difficult to translate, but one thing that a new translation at least has a right to try to be is more accurate as to the literal sense of the text, which sometimes might have been uh, missed for any number of reasons. Uh, this translation is based on the new definitive German text that was edited by Malcolm Paisley has been published, and uh, it includes uh, some things that clearly were not available to the Muirs in translation to begin with, and some other changes, uh, several small changes certainly throughout the text. Uh, beyond that, the only thing that I would, uh, I strive for is a sort of simplicity and directness which may be part of a way that uh, it's possible to translate Kafka now, which simply over the course of time has become possible. In a way, it wasn't so easy to do in the 1920s just because it was a different language and, of course, it was a different continent that it was being translated on. Um, a couple of thoughts. Um, Helen uh, Lowe Porter had an incredibly large job ahead of, ahead of her when she sat down to this. My task was eased a great deal by the fact that we live in a computer age. I could scan the Mon text into my computer so that I had the German text available to me to search out all those tiny little light motifs that constantly keep working through the Mon text. Um, I cannot imagine uh, anyone trying to keep that inside her or his head. So that um, I have great respect for what went before. If, if I had an intention in any of this, it, it is based upon my general sense that literary German, Thomas Mann included, um, works on a much more elaborate scheme than we are accustomed to, at least in modern American literature, and perhaps have not been accustomed to since Henry James. Um, and that for a German reader reading this text, um, Mann is never turgid or seldom turgid, um, almost never dense. That is that the syntax moves and dances on its own and through that elaborate construction, which the German reader simply accepts, comes all this marvelous wit and irony. And I felt it incumbent upon me to at least attempt to bring that experience to an American reader. Whether or not I succeeded, that is, is up to those who read it. Um, I hope that at least you got a sense of how different my text is from that one that you are accustomed to. And then we'll play out the forces and see whether 
um, people agree that they've got something from on that they didn't have before. My problem is a rather a different one from the two preceding, uh, because the previous translation to Musil, first of all, was a very uh, translation only of a, not a very much of the original German, and it was based on a hasty and faulty edition of the 1950s. <coughs> Uh, so it had to be redone in 1977, a new German edition came out, which is not definitive either, but is uh, quite respectable from a scholarly point of view, and that is the basis for the new translation. It, it includes about twi at least twice as much material as was in the earlier translation, which of course has never been entirely available anyway, as those of you who've tried to find it at various times will uh, have realized. So that will be... Um, uh, over. So essentially there, there was an earlier translation, but it's, it was simply superseded by uh, the forces of history uh, without even regard to any uh, questions of uh, should it be or shouldn't it be or does it need to be uh, retranslated. Uh, it's essentially um, a, almost a first translation of what we have. There's another thing, that, uh, following on what John said, that I'd like to uh, point out with Musil that makes him especially difficult. Uh, Musil uh, was trained as a scientist, not as a literary person. He, had, um, he got his PhD in behavioral psychology and also had advanced training in engineering and mathematics. And uh, he is trying to write um, in a way that involves what the phenomenologists were trying to do, his, uh, the people that he was really uh, following were uh, Ernst Mach, uh, William James, uh, Husserl, uh, and that circle of people in Berlin and elsewhere, and who were very much interested in perception, in the way that the mind perceives the world. And you will have recall in these episodes with Clarissa, it was entirely about her perception of the world as being valid as a perception of the world, no matter what its relation was to the sanity of other people. So what he's doing, he's not writing as a scientist, he's writing as a literary person, but his whole formation, uh, he's coming from a different direction uh, from the one that we are accustomed to, and I think that's what makes his case special. We can take some questions from the floor. Uh, to respond to uh, these, uh, please. I would be interested in knowing what were the particular reasons which prompted the translators to choose the passages which they read this evening. Yes. Uh, he is curious to know uh, what reasons prompted the translators to choose the passages. Uh, uh, that they read this evening. Uh, John? Um, it brought together several strands at once, um, gave me some different voices. Um, Barron's is a delight all the way through the, the, uh, the novel. I couldn't bring you peppercorn at the same time, so um, I, I truly believe uh, Mann was a master of capturing voices and people and situations, and this is a very intense situation with several of, of the main figures brought together. That was my main concern. Also, to keep it within the prescribed time limits, you look for a passage, it'll do that. Um, Bert? Well, it's uh, very difficult uh, to choose uh, <coughs> in this novel. It also, The Man Without Qualities is also about uh, the collapse of European society uh, before the First World War. And Clarissa is a very important representative of this collapse. I mean, her madness, in some sense, is a reflection of the madness of the times. Uh, from a practical point of view, uh, it, the novel is very interlaced, and it's almost impossible to sort of extract passages because you leave the tangled roots and things uh, in the context around it. 
And I thought that these episodes with Clarissa, especially from the posthumous papers, where there are sort of little set pieces that he was then going to work on later, uh, seemed to be the clearest thing to choose for reading. How about Brian? Yes, the trial was an unfinished novel. I didn't want to read the opening lines, uh, the beginning of the novel, which is, is quite well known and problematic. Uh, Kafka did write the final chapter uh, and balanced it very carefully over against the opening chapter so that you hear phrases coming back again from the opening chapter and the final chapter uh, as well. The final chapter also happens to be a self-contained short story, and it's the right length. <laughs> Any other questions? Lynn? Sure. Uh, not a very profound question, but since your reasons, we all want to know why, why these works needed to be retranslated. I have a particular stake because uh, the Kaisers who translated Musil originally used to come to my house in Rome. So I was there in the second stage of their work because they retranslated the first translation, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I was wondering, you've given some rather um, respectable scholarly, all, all three readings were marvelous, by the way. Uh, you've given some very respectable scholarly reasons for, for, for redoing it, that the text was refound or was different or there have been interpolations and so forth. Were there any stylistic prejudices on your part? Uh, did you think that any of these works needed to be brought up to date and that your styles were going to be more modern in any way? I say that, there's a little edge to my saying that, that I'm just trying to be provocative. Well, in the case of Musil, uh, yes, definitely. And again, because of the radicality of his style, uh, Musil's whole mode in this novel, as in the rest of his fiction, was completely experimental. And I think that the uh, previous translators, uh, and by the way, Richard Howard said once a, ver a very nice thing. He said that the first translation of a work always tends to be overcautious. And the second translation, the retranslation, can then be more radical because it, the, the first one has served as a base. And I think that's very much the case with uh, Musil, uh, that uh, the translators had felt um, uh, Musil is very uncomfortable if you follow his radicality uh, as he was writing. There's always the temptation to make these people nicer, to make Clarissa a sort of a victim, to make her misunderstood. Musil will have none of that. He is following out Clarissa on her path logically to the end, and you simply have to go with him. And it's a rather horrific uh, thing at times, as, as you heard. And I think the, uh, when the original translation was done, uh, the people who did it, of course, and the time in which it was done, uh, were, I think, not quite ready for this kind of experimental openness. Uh, the di I don't think the differences are enormous in that sense, but I mean, it's just it's a matter of tone more than it is anything else or accuracy. Might I say that um, all original translations have, or in usually have, the benefit of contemporaneity. And there, are, there, there is a sound to the language that belongs to the period of, of pre-World War I Switzerland that I cannot bring to, the, to my English. I constantly strive to find some of the right words for, for widgets and gadgets and all the rest that are just the right words from the period, but you can't always do that. So that the, the first translation always has that um, going for it. I was struck, however, uh, I think by how very close the diction of these three translations uh, were to one another. A certain sense of how uh, late 20th century American prose is structured, the diction it takes on. Um, 
obviously we're giving you then your prose back to you. Is that Thomas Mann's Musil's and Kafka's prose? Um, I can only say that it is to the extent that it attempts to reproduce a reading experience for you in your language. I think in the case of Kafka and the trial, the word radical is well in place. Uh, the <coughs> radicality of his style is hard for us to remember now. But if you think about the appearance of this novel posthumously in 1925, at a time when uh, just two or three years after Joyce's Ulysses had appeared, uh, Proust, uh, Remembrance of Things Past coming out, The Magic Mountain in 1924 of Thomas Mann, uh, this is a work that was radically different from the great literary works that were being produced at that time, and also radically different from the expressionist German prose that was, had been produced with its high degree of emotional intensity. I think what was difficult uh, for any translator then was to, to live with that, that radical simplici simplicity and the struggle with each individual sentence that this represented for uh, Kafka. For Kafka, writing was a form of prayer, and every sentence was a struggle for him, and it's just a totally different feeling. I think the translators then found it hard always to stay with that or, or to, to be true to that and the tendency to want to soften it, to make it more accessible, more understandable, to make it flow in a different way that seemed more like what people were used to hearing. I think that was a very, very strong uh, temptation and that in little ways, and I think the Muirs were very, very faithful in their attempt to work with the text, but in little ways and build up over the course of the whole of the novel, it, it, it gave a feeling that uh, was not as radical as it's possible to be today and have people, I think, totally comfortable with it because we've, we've grown into it. There's another uh, aspect of this, and that is that a lot of these translations, I'm thinking of Mrs. Lowe Porter's uh, specifically, were done at a time when language was not sort of foremost in people's consciousness. Uh, that language was sort of as the vehicle uh, in which you just, the story was just translated and you used a language to translate the story. And now we are so immersed in the idea of language and the impossibility of language and the difficulty of language, we also realize that for, I think for all three writers, that language is not just a vehicle, it is part of their subject. Uh, they are post-Nietzschean in this. I think this is something that they all got from Nietzsche. Uh, that, so that the language itself, the style of the language has to be part of the book. It's not just something that you're translating into. Any other questions? Uh, what, what difficulty does Hamlet and Sigafredi share because of a written German? The question was what difficulties uh, did the three translators share because uh, they were, or challenges uh, because they were all working from German? May I ask, let, let me make further that question then. Uh, to what extent uh, did uh, your English and German f fight each other? No. Yeah. Yeah. Lots. Lots. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the basic problem for Musil is that he has many passages that are uh, 
philosophical, um, and German has this marvelous level just above the level of concreteness where mm -hmm. you can work mm -hmm. very comfortably that's absent in English. English is full of the names of things. If you want to name things, English is your language. If you want to categorize the things at the just at one level up, there's nothing in English to do it. And it's, it's very difficult so that it either comes out in English sounding impossibly turgid, which the German doesn't sound at all, or it comes out sounding like you're just talking about the things and you're missing that. It's very, very difficult. I second that motion. <laughs> <laughs> I found with Kafka one of the most difficult things has to do with the structure of the German language and particularly the way, uh, not just the syntactic structure of the sentence, but particularly the way in which Kafka can very effectively use double negatives in German so as to constantly undermine what he's saying and it works excellently in German. It's very, very hard to use double negatives effectively in, in, in English. And uh, the tendency, and the Muir's tendency as well here, and I give this as an example of a struggle on my part, not a solution. The tendency of the Muir's was to avoid the double negative. I entered onto this project trying to see if I could save, save it, and I have not been able to save it in, in any effective way that I, that I can figure out. And there are places where you can do it, obviously, but not in the same pervasive way, and that's a struggle that's a particular problem with mine it's true of, of all German but with mine in particular because he builds these huge long sentences um, German is a language uh, that has a very heavy grammar where you can de you can heavily determine a sentence you can bring all kinds of adjectives and relationships and pres prepositional phrases and further clauses all connected to one another by grammatical flashes you know whether it's a dame der das den that tells you all kinds of things about the structure of the sentence. How you preserve a lovely period in English without that to, to help you is, you know, I mean, that you take it apart 10 times and put it back together 11 until you finally get it. Edna? Yeah. Um, clearly with uh, both Mann and Mozeal, both novels, um, were addressing philosophical and psychological and social and political issues of, of the time. Um, I, because I was once forced to take a course on mine, I know that <laughs> the, uh, the uh, conversations between Seth and Brini and Nafta were very much based on Georg Lukács and Henri Begzon, and um, uh, Pippa Korn is based on Gerhard Halfman, et cetera, et cetera. How, and Mozilla I don't know as well, but clearly he tackles a lot of these issues too. How locked into doing research on those issues and the language of those issues, did you feel uh, in translating that? Did you feel like you had to get to know Lukács or uh, Bergson in order to translate those dialogues? No. Um. <laughs> um, right, much, <laughs> uh, much of what's embedded in the work that was discussed this evening, uh, Mon especially, uh, uh, is in the social, uh, psychological, and uh, philosophical discussions of the day, mainly Bergson and Lukács. Uh, to what extent did the translators feel obliged to do uh, their homework uh, to, 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 to reread uh, uh, the literature of the day and the uh, philosophical writings of the day? And my response was none, and I, I will have to justify that because I know it, it is, is a controversial way of going about it. It seems to me that one of the things I'm doing is giving a 
responsible reading of the text. Um, a responsible reading of the text, however, um, is what I bring to it as a reader. If I begin to work with all of the secondary materials that circle around one of these texts, the danger of some kind of tendentiousness creeping into it. Now, may, I may be bringing my tendentiousness into it as a responsible reader, but I hope that I have backed off enough from all of that that surrounds the text and tried to give you the text as it came to the reader in, uh, in Germany in, in the 1920s. That is the text I want you to see, and not A's interpretation, B's interpretation, the possibility that C is correct here. Um, it seems to me that that tends to uh, ultimately undermine what my task is as a translator to present you with a text that you want to read. I would also add to that that um, in the case of Musil, I think in the case of all novels, that what you're dealing with is a novel as an aesthetic unit. And you, want, you translate the, uh, the novel as an aesthetic unit, not as a, a compilation of the author's sources. In Musil, uh, th this was especially difficult in the posthumous papers, these thousands of pages, because this was material that Musil himself had excerpted from all over the place uh, and had not yet worked up into fictional form. And this went, he has four chapters on the history and development of the psychology of the emotions beginning about the year 2 AD. And he gives a resume of all of the authorities and <coughs> the field of the emotions in the language of the time in which the original authorities were writing. Uh, it's almost like the Oxen of the Sun chapter in Ulysses. And I thought, well, I really did have an obligation there because this was raw material rather than, than the result. Uh, to uh, look into that. I looked, and then also the language of mysticism, Meister Eckhart, 17th century is all over the place. And so then I looked at it and I thought, well, life's too short for one thing. <laughs> uh, also, I have, I have a job. <laughs> and I, it, it was something that would have just uh, gone way beyond, I think, any kind of um, return uh, in the sense. So uh, I did the best I could on those things and got some experts to check over this or that just to make sure that I wasn't going off the deep end. Um, but um, in the German, uh, in German those places are rather rebarbative and I thought Carol Janeway said and kept on saying that we, what we have to have in English is a reading edition. People are going to have to want to read this. This stuff is absolutely fascinating. You can't just you know, present it that way. So I kept that in mind as my major principle is what would this material be like to read and work from there as best I could. I think we have time for one, two more questions. Uh, Rika? I'm going to open another can of translators' worms, and that's asking each of you, especially Brian Mitchell, who said that he was trying to be accurate and the Muirs were trying to be faithful. I want you all to address that issue. It's a terrible issue, and it's a terrible issue when authors are alive instead of dead. And I'll just give a quick example. There were terrific difficulties between the Danish author, Peter Hoeg, and his American translator, Tina Nunnally. And Tina is a fantastically good translator of Danish. And the manuscript was very marked up by the author and resubmitted to his publisher because, as he said, Tina's translation was not accurate. And it's in that spirit that I'd like you each to say something about this. I could. 
Let me start with that at any rate, uh, since I raised those words. When I said that the Muirs were faithful and were attempting to be faithful, I meant that insofar as I've studied and used their translation, and I've both done that for, for many, many years as well as taught and worked with the German original, I've found that every time I look closely, I have a sense of someone trying to get things right and trying to get everything in. It's not at all slipshod. It's not at all uh, something that, that takes lightly the text. And in that sense, I think they try to be accurate as well as be faithful to their sense of what the text meant and what the text should sound like. Uh, in many cases, it, they couldn't be accurate. They, they had a text, a German text, that had gone through an editorial process that wasn't a totally uh, accurate one. I, in others, I think that uh, they may have uh, simply not had uh, the access to, to information. It's just possible that things slip in that are, that, that are inaccurate. I, I can give you two examples quickly, because those are better than just saying it in, in general. Uh, when uh, Joseph K. is walking along, uh, with his two escorts and following Fräulein Bürstner, the definitive German text says that his steps were in symmetry with the steps of the three others. That means the two men escorting him and Fräulein Bürstner who's in front of him. But the standard, the Muir translation says with the two other, with the two other men. The reason for that is that when the text was done originally in German, Brot I think, simply thought three was a mistake and changed it to two in German. And of course, they accurately uh, translated it that way. Another small example is at the quarry at the end. Uh, the standard translation has uh, a boulder. They go over to the quarry wall, and then the reference is to a boulder, and that they lay, uh, set Joseph K. on the boulder and lay him back against it. Uh, the, both the German and, and the actual, what it, it has to be, uh, is easier if you've been around quarries. They happen to be prevalent in, in uh, Bloomington. But the reference is to a block, which is a finished, cut, and shaped block, uh, uh, much more suitable in a way as a sacrificial altar than a boulder would be, and has been come loose or is, 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 has been carved out of and is now lying uh, there. Uh, so the repeated reference in standard translation to the, to the boulder is just one of those small inaccuracies that come in. Well, maybe it doesn't make that much difference, uh, but I do think that, that they were attempting as best they could to be accurate. I don't think they were lighthearted about it in, in any way. Well, it seems to me that Musil was uh, doing something um, again, rather different and very difficult to do. He's hard to read in German, but it goes along, uh, you're fascinated. My object, I think, was to have the same, uh, if Musil were writing in English, how would he have written? And to try to make it come out that way. And my object was to shock and startle the English reader in exactly the same way that somebody reading it in German is shocked and startled on every page, at least twice, by something Musil is doing. Uh, and so to try to do something equivalent, uh, perhaps, rather than to be uh, accurate or uh, faithful in, um, in that other sense of the term. I, um, those are wise words from a, from a translator. Um, it is that faithfulness, that recreating the, the reading experience. 
I think uh, translators are among the few people engaged in, a, in an aesthetic uh, process other than perhaps performing artists on a concert stage where we can be measured uh, in terms of our accuracy. There is the fact of the artifact and no matter how carefully and precisely you work, you will always make quote unquote mistakes as a translator. Um, a bad translator makes a lot of mistakes. The good ones, we try to make a fewer uh, numbers of mistakes, but the, the resultant text should be something like what Burton uh, talked to you about. I wanted to say one other thing about the uh, faithfulness to the tone of Kafka. In Kafka's case, there isn't the same philosophical uh, linguistic background that you, you might normally get. Instead, you have his training in law, you have his work for the insurance company, the insurance reports that he wrote, you have his interest in scientific and even journalistic reports at the time, so that you have levels of diction and tone, including police reports, insurance reports, legal briefs, and all of these have in common a certain calmness to them, even in the midst of most horrific situations. And uh, I'm not saying that I've tried to make this sound like an insurance report, but the sense there has to be somehow to have a levelness that is matter of fact and at the same time carries some poetic power. Kafka could do that. That was his genius, I think. We can take some more questions, not just one. Uh, if anybody uh, has anything uh, that's uh, on their minds, the panelists will be happy to uh, respond. I, I think uh, it's not just that we are sensitive or more sensitive uh, towards language, but I think these particular writers, uh, these three writers, were inordinately sensitive to language. And again, it was because Nietzsche had sensitized them 
i think to that and so they were really experimenting with making language express all of the new discoveries that had been made about cognition perception a relation to the world the complexity of society and and so forth the social institutions even the extremely subtle undercuttings that are in that scene from the magic mountain of the entire structure of european society just in that one little scene i think are also part of that I might just turn to, to one point related to that perhaps that I think is very interesting about the effect of the computer on translation and its effect on creative writing itself is yet another tremendously and fascinating question. But, but uh, Kafka, not to the extent of Thomas Mann certainly, but Kafka as well has a whole, of course, has an interconnected series of, of uh, images and words that a translator can follow much more easily with a computer. Uh, and you can see the words coming up again, and you can see, uh, and if you wish, you can be extremely uh, careful to be consistent. And it's just very hard to do, I think, uh, without, the com without the computer, to hold it all in your head. You can come closer with, with Kafka. I want to give one quick example with the word uh, in the first uh, sentence. Of, of the trial, there's the reference to the word, Inus, there's the phrase, Inus Tagus. And that's translated uh, in the standard Muir translation, one fine day. Uh, the one fine day has a sort of irony to it. Uh, why it's there, it's, it's not clear. Uh, but in the opening sentence of uh, Die Verwandlung, the metamorphosis, the words Inus Tagus also come. Because Gregor finds himself, Einus Tagus, turned into a, and there the Muir's translated simply one morning. And so if I would talk with the Muir's, I would be interested to know whether they felt that the Einus Tagus had to be one fine morning in one place and not in the other, or whether, you know, had they had that all in their minds always, they would have been consistent. I have wondered if maybe each writer will affect the translator in this way and that it, Kafka tortures me with this and, and Thomas Mann gives John a, a fun and irony as he's working with it and you get the, the, the wit and intellect of, of Musil. So. <laughs> I think what, you, uh, what we've been talking about and have just been talking about the materiality of words, the, 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 the iteration throughout our text uh, of, of themes. These are the kinds of things that the, 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 the original writer uh, would have in his or her head. And that uh, the, 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 the sometimes subconsciously and sometimes very consciously. Uh, and that the computer is the instrument whereby we can uh, attempt to retrieve uh, that, and we couldn't have done that before. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, 
I don't, I don't want to brag, but I didn't, you know, I didn't do the complete works. But when I was in college, I was translating Rilke, and I read everything, and it was all in my head. And I did my translations, and they were published. And when I was republishing them, uh, ten years later, there was a concordance. Mm -hmm. There used to be concordances, That's true. Yeah. That's and true. so you could get help. It was, you know, give me Rilke on CD-ROM any day. But if I were doing it again. But um, also an interesting case, more on your side of this, is um, say how Richard Howard is not going to retranslate the entirety of A la Recherche du Temps Perdu. He's only doing the first book because he realized that taking it all in would be too much. And he had other things to do with his life also. And yes, there is this problem of other things in the life. <laughs> And any other questions? The number of questions in mind, but one uh, touches the issue of accuracy and uh, fidelity in a slightly different way. I heard a talk once by Lee Haffrey, who had ventured a translation of the trial, and he said he was shocked by Kafka's sloppiness. This caused, caused great consternation in the audience which consisted of members of the Kafka Society of America. What he meant was that in certain scenes, certain details didn't parse. And I was offended by the idea too, but recently reading America, noticed the sentence in the German that literally translates as follows. Karl turned and looked back to see the bridge spanning the Hudson River connecting New York and Boston. <laughs> I looked at the Muirs who said, Carl looked back to see the bridge over the East River spanning New York and Brooklyn. <laughs> uh, who here is faithful to Kafka? And do these sorts of questions arise for you in translating yeah. the trial? Well, uh, in a it's, it's a, that's a very good question. In a famous uh, example, uh, when in America, when Carl Rossman appears, he looks up and he sees the Statue of Liberty holding the sword on high. <laughs> I think to change that to a torch on high probably would be a, a travesty of, of what Kafka was doing. I think he could make mistakes. and It happens with Proust, too. Proust has one sort of flower in the vase, and 20 pages later, it's the same hour or day, but the flowers are changed, or the color of the eyes change. Mm -hmm. All sorts of things happen. And uh, as long as uh, there ought to be some way that you make clear whether you're translating or whether you're improving, uh, if you think somebody's made a mistake. It's very interesting somewhere. how copy editors respond to all of <laughs> these <laughs> things. <laughs> In the cases where I've translated living authors and, and seen inconsistencies, in every case, in that case, the living authors have said, make it consistent. You know, I forgot. Hotel room was on the sixth floor in chapter three, and they come out of the hotel room on the fourth floor. So I said, did they change hotel rooms? No, 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 put it on the same floor, you know. That sort of thing, uh, it just happens. And uh, so, yes, if Kafka were here and other authors, they, they might say, go ahead and get that particular detail right. But I don't think the Statue of Liberty would be given a torch.
the the basic problem here is um, uh, to the extent that uh, all translators are faced uh, initially with any text of uh, viewing it as a sacred text. It 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 limits you. It talks back to you, uh, and uh, knowing the bounds of disrespect that you can show it. Um, a modern classic, of course, uh, is very much on the borderline. You can play, you can play much more readily when, uh, with an ancient text. Uh, you can interpret it uh, more freely. Uh, but we still have the, the ghost of these authors and the author's heirs <laughs> and living editors uh, of record uh, to respond to. Any other questions? Lynn, you want one more? Yeah. All right. Sure. I thought it was very refined on this, but I was thinking that we, that we probably couldn't really answer right now without working from the Italian translation, which is so brilliant and innovative, uh, published by Adelphi in Italy. And I was thinking how that complicates the process if there's been a magnificent translation in another language. It's an old problem. Uh, Chaucer's Romance of the Rose was sort of copped from Jean de Mal's uh, French version. Uh, uh, um, no, Chaucer's Boethius was. Jean de Mal was the writer of the composer of the Romance of the Rose. He also translated Boethius. And Chaucer copped his Boethius by making his own versions. Uh, it's an old problem. Uh, um, uh, does anybody have anything to respond to? I was oh. just going yeah. to say that uh, I studied the French and the German translations of Ulysses, the German in quite some detail, the French only peripherally. Uh, Joyce played a role in the translation into French. He played a smaller role on the first few pages of the translation into German. The German went through two editions. The re re revisions for the second edition, all you have to do is look at the changes and compare them with the French, and you can see that the German translator went again and again to the French translation and m used solutions that the French translation offered in German. And I'd, it's an interesting thing, and it can, can be done. Uh, that way. I couldn't imagine translating Kafka. First of all, I never looked at the, don't look at the Muir translation, although it's too much with me in my mind anyway, but I, I really can't imagine looking at the French or Italian or Spanish, no matter how wonderful it was. As Yeah, generally speaking, because those are the words that circulate in most of our heads. Um, all you know, I can I can imagine an occasion when I would use some other kind of translation, but generally speaking, 
because it is the one that we still carry with us. It's the one I would use. In Musial, these are not uh, quotations, <laughs> but sort of allusions uh, in the German, and there's there's sort of echoes. And so in the English, <coughs> I would use a little of the King James, but to make it an echo rather than a, a quotation. It's the same in my case. I'd use the King James always and do. No more questions? All right. Uh, let me thank you all, thank the panelists, and also close with one thought, not my own, uh, but Gregory Abbasa, uh, I'm referring to uh, Homer, saying the poor Greeks, they only had one Homer, and we have so many. <laughs>